This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Carmilla by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Read for LibriVox by Elizabeth Clett. Chapter 4 Her Habits A Saunter. I told you that I was charmed with her in most particulars. There were some that did not please me so well. She was above the middle height of women. I shall begin by describing her. She was slender, and wonderfully graceful. Except that her movements were languid—very languid—indeed there was nothing in her appearance to indicate an invalid. Her complexion was rich and brilliant, her features were small and beautifully formed, her eyes large, dark, and lustrous, her hair was quite wonderful—I never saw hair so magnificently thick and long when it was down about her shoulders. I have often placed my hands under it, and laughed with wonder at its weight. It was exquisitely fine and soft, and in color a rich, very dark brown, with something of gold. I loved to let it down, tumbling with its own weight, as in her room she lay back in her chair talking in her sweet low voice. I used to fold and braid it, and spread it out and play with it. Heavens! If I had but known all! I said there were particulars which did not please me. I have told you that her confidence won me the first night I saw her, but I found that she exercised with respect to herself, her mother, her history, everything, in fact, connected with her life, plans, and people, an ever-wakeful reserve. I dare say I was unreasonable. Perhaps I was wrong. I dare say I ought to have respected the solemn injunction laid upon my father by the stately lady in black velvet. But curiosity is a restless and unscrupulous passion, and no one girl can endure with patience that hers should be baffled by another. What harm could it do any one to tell me what I so ardently desired to know? Had she no trust in my good sense or honour? Why would she not believe me when I assured her so solemnly that I would not divulge one syllable of what she told me to any mortal breathing? There was a coldness, it seemed to me, beyond her years, in her smiling, melancholy, persistent refusal to afford me the least ray of light. I cannot say we quarrelled upon this point, for she would not quarrel upon any. It was, of course, very unfair of me to press her, very ill-bred, but really I could not help it, and I might just as well have let it alone. What she did tell me amounted, in my unconscionable estimation, to nothing. It was all summed up in three very vague disclosures. First, her name was Carmilla. Second, her family was very ancient and noble. Third, her home lay in the direction of the West. She would not tell me the name of her family, nor their armorial bearings, nor the name of their estate, nor even that of the country they lived in. You are not to suppose that I worried her incessantly on these subjects. I watched opportunity, and rather insinuated than urged my inquiries. Once or twice, indeed, I did attack her more directly. But, no matter what my tactics, 
utter failure was invariably the result. Reproaches and caresses were all lost upon her. But I must add this, that her evasion was conducted with so pretty a melancholy in deprecation, with so many and even passionate declarations of her liking for me, and trust in my honour, and with so many promises that I should at last know all, that I could not find it in my heart long to be offended with her. She used to place her pretty arms around my neck, draw me to her, and laying her cheek to mine murmur with her lips near my ear, Dearest, your little heart is wounded. Think me not cruel, because I obey the irresistible law of my strength and weakness. If your dear heart is wounded, my wild heart bleeds with yours. In the rapture of my enormous humiliation, I live in your warm life, and you shall die, die, sweetly die, into mine. I cannot help it. As I draw near to you, you, in your turn, will draw near to others, and learn the rapture of that cruelty which yet is love. So for a while seek to know no more of me and mine, but trust me with all your loving spirit. And when she had spoken such a rhapsody, she would press me more closely in her trembling embrace, and her lips and soft kisses gently glow upon my cheek. Her agitations and her language were unintelligible to me. From these foolish embraces, which were not of very frequent occurrence, I must allow I used to wish to extricate myself, but my energies seemed to fail me. Her murmured words sounded like a lullaby in my ear, and soothed my resistance into a trance, from which I only seemed to recover myself when she withdrew her arms. In these mysterious moods I did not like her. I experienced a strange, tumultuous excitement that was pleasurable, ever and anon, mingled with a vague sense of fear and distrust. I had no distinct thoughts about her while such scenes lasted, but I was conscious of a love growing into adoration, and also of abhorrence. This, I know, is paradox, but I can make no other attempt to explain the feeling. I now write, after an interval of more than ten years, with a trembling hand, with a confused and horrible recollection of certain occurrences and situations, in the ordeal through which I was unconsciously passing, though with a very vivid and sharp remembrance of the main current of my story. But, I suspect, in all lives there are certain emotional scenes, those in which our passions have been most wildly and terribly roused, that are of all others the most vaguely and dimly remembered. Sometimes, after an hour of apathy, my strange and beautiful companion would take my hand and hold it with a fond pressure, renewed again and again, blushing softly, gazing in my face with languid and burning eyes, and breathing so fast that her dress rose and fell with the tumultuous respiration. It was like the ardour of a lover. It embarrassed me. It was hateful, and yet overpowering. And with gloating eyes she drew me to her, and her hot lips travelled along my cheek in kisses, and she would whisper, almost in sobs, "'You are mine. You shall be mine. You and I are one for ever.' 
Then she had thrown herself back in her chair, with her small hands over her eyes, leaving me trembling. "'Are we related?' I used to ask. "'What can you mean by all this? I remind you, perhaps, of someone whom you love. But you must not. I hate it. I don't know you. I don't know myself when you look so and talk so.' She used to sigh at my vehemence, then turn away and drop my hand. Respecting these very extraordinary manifestations, I strove in vain to form any satisfactory theory. I could not refer them to affectation or trick. It was unmistakably the momentary breaking out of suppressed instinct and emotion. Was she, notwithstanding her mother's volunteered denial, subject to brief visitations of insanity? Or was there here a disguise and a romance? I had read in old story-books of such things. What if a boyish lover had found his way into the house, and sought to prosecute his suit in masquerade, with the assistance of a clever old adventuress? But there were many things against this hypothesis, highly interesting as it was to my vanity. I could boast of no little attentions, such as masculine gallantry delights to offer. Between these passionate moments there were long intervals of commonplace, of gaiety, of brooding melancholy, during which, except that I detected her eyes so full of melancholy fire, following me, at times I might have been as nothing to her. Except in these brief periods of mysterious excitement her ways were girlish, and there was always a languor about her, quite incompatible with the masculine system in a state of health. In some respects her habits were odd, perhaps not so singular in the opinion of a town lady like you, as they appeared to us rustic people. She used to come down very late, generally not till one o'clock. She would then take a cup of chocolate, but eat nothing. We then went out for a walk, which was a mere saunter, and she seemed almost immediately exhausted, and either returned to the schloss, or sat on one of the benches that were placed here and there among the trees. This was a bodily languor in which her mind did not sympathize. She was always an animated talker, and very intelligent. She sometimes alluded for a moment to her own home, or mentioned an adventure or situation, or an early recollection which indicated a people of strange manners, and described customs of which we knew nothing. I gathered from these chance hints that her native country was much more remote than I had at first fancied. As we sat thus one afternoon under the trees, a funeral passed us by. It was that of a pretty young girl, whom I had often seen, the daughter of one of the rangers of the forest. The poor man was walking behind the coffin of his darling. She was his only child, and he looked quite heartbroken. Peasants walking two and two came behind. They were singing a funeral hymn. I rose to mark my respect as they passed and joined in the hymn they were very sweetly singing. My companion shook me a little roughly, and I turned surprised. She said brusquely, "'Don't you perceive how discordant that is?' "'I think it very sweet, on the contrary,' I answered, vexed at the interruption, and very uncomfortable lest the people who composed the little procession should observe and resent what was passing. I resumed, therefore, instantly, and was again interrupted. "'You pierce my ears,' said Carmilla, almost angrily, and stopping her ears with her tiny fingers. "'Besides, how can you tell that your religion and mine are the same? 
Your forms wound me, and I hate funerals. What a fuss! Why, you must die, every one must die, and all are happier when they do. Come home. My father has gone on with the clergyman to the churchyard. I thought you knew she was to be buried to-day. She? I don't trouble my head about peasants. I don't know who she is, answered Carmilla, with a flash from her fine eyes. She is the poor girl who fancied she saw a ghost a fortnight ago, and has been dying ever since, till yesterday when she expired. Tell me nothing about ghosts. I shan't sleep to-night if you do. I hope there is no plague or fever coming. All this looks very like it, I continued. The swineherd's young wife died only a week ago, and she thought something seized her by the throat as she lay in her bed, and nearly strangled her. Papa says some horrible fancies do accompany some forms of fever. She was quite well the day before. She sank afterwards, and died before a week. Well, her funeral is over, I hope, and her hymn sung, and our ears shan't be tortured with that discord and jargon. Oh, it has made me nervous. Sit down here, beside me. Sit close. Hold my hand. Press it hard. Hard. Harder. We had moved a little back, and had come to another seat. She sat down. Her face underwent a change that alarmed and even terrified me for a moment. It darkened, and became horribly livid. Her teeth and hands were clenched, and she frowned and compressed her lips, while she stared down upon the ground at her feet, and trembled all over with a continued shudder as irrepressible as ague. All her energy seemed strained to suppress a fit, with which she was then breathlessly tugging. And at length a low, convulsive cry of suffering broke from her— and gradually the hysteria subsided. "'There! That comes of strangling people with hymns,' she said at last. "'Hold me! Hold me still! It is passing away.' And so gradually it did. And perhaps to dissipate the sombre impression which the spectacle had left upon me, she became unusually animated and chatty, and so we got home." This was the first time I had seen her exhibit any definable symptoms of that delicacy of health which her mother had spoken of. It was the first time, also, I had seen her exhibit anything like temper. Both passed away like a summer cloud, and never but once afterwards did I witness on her part a momentary sign of anger. I will tell you how it happened. She and I were looking out of one of the long drawing-room windows, when there entered the courtyard over the drawbridge— the figure of a wanderer whom I knew very well. He used to visit the Schloss generally twice a year. It was the figure of a hunchback, with the sharp, lean features that generally accompany deformity. He wore a pointed black beard, and he was smiling from ear to ear, showing his white fangs. He was dressed in buff, black, and scarlet, and crossed with more straps and belts than I could count, from which hung all manner of things— Behind he carried a magic lantern, and two boxes which I well knew, in one of which was a salamander, and the other a mandrake. These monsters used to make my father laugh. They were compounded of parts of monkeys, parrots, squirrels, fish and hedgehogs, dried and stitched together with great neatness and startling effect. He had a fiddle, 
a box of conjuring apparatus, a pair of foils and masks attached to his belt, several other mysterious cases dangling about him, and a black staff with copper ferules in his hand. His companion was a rough, spare dog that followed at his heels, but stopped short, suspiciously at the drawbridge, and in a little while began to howl dismally. In the meantime, the mountebank, standing in the midst of the courtyard, raised his grotesque hat and made us a very ceremonious bow, paying his compliments very volubly in execrable French, and German not much better. Then, disengaging his fiddle, he began to scrape a lively air to which he sang with a merry discord, dancing with ludicrous airs and activity that made me laugh in spite of the dog's howling. Then he advanced to the window with many smiles and salutations, and his hat in his left hand, his fiddle under his arm, and with a fluency that never took breath, he gabbled a long advertisement of all his accomplishments, and the resources of the various arts which he placed at our service, and the curiosities and entertainments which it was in his power, at our bidding, to display. "'Will your ladyships be pleased to buy an amulet against the oopire, which is going like the wolf I hear through these woods?' he said, dropping his hat on the pavement. "'They are dying of it right and left, and here is a charm that never fails, only pinned to the pillow, and you may laugh in his face.' These charms consisted of oblong slips of vellum, with cabalistic ciphers and diagrams upon them. Carmilla instantly purchased one, and so did I. He was looking up, and we were smiling down upon him, amused. At least I can answer for myself. His piercing black eye, as he looked up in our faces, seemed to detect something that fixed for a moment his curiosity. In an instant he unrolled a leather case, full of all manner of odd little steel instruments. "'See here, my lady,' he said, displaying it and addressing me. "'I profess, among other things less useful, the art of dentistry.' "'Plague take the dog!' he interpolated. "'Silence, beast! He howls so that your ladyships can scarcely hear a word.' "'Your noble friend, the young lady at your right, has the sharpest tooth. Long, thin, pointed, like an awl like a needle. With my sharp and long sight, as I look up, I have seen it distinctly. Now, if it happens to hurt the young lady, and I think it must, here am I. Here are my file, my punch, my nippers. I will make it round and blunt, if her ladyship pleases. No longer the tooth of a fish, but of a beautiful young lady as she is. Hey! Is the young lady displeased? Have I been too bold? Have I offended her?" The young lady, indeed, looked very angry as she drew back from the window. "'How dare that mountebank insult us so! Where is your father? I shall demand redress from him. My father would have had the wretch tied up to the pump and flogged with a cart-whip, and burnt to the bones with the cattle-brand.' She retired from the window a step or two and sat down, and had hardly lost sight of the offender, when her wrath subsided as suddenly as it had risen, and she gradually recovered her usual tone, and seemed to forget the little hunchback and his follies. My father was out of spirits that evening. On coming in he told us that there had been another case, 
very similar to the two fatal ones which had lately occurred. The sister of a young peasant on his estate, only a mile away, was very ill, had been, as she described it, attacked very nearly in the same way, and was now slowly but steadily sinking. "'All this,' said my father, "'is strictly referable to natural causes. These poor people infect one another with their superstitions, and so repeat in imagination the images of terror that have infested their neighbours. But that very circumstance frightens one horribly," said Carmilla. "'How so?' inquired my father. "'I am so afraid of fancying I see such things. I think it would be as bad as reality.' "'We are in God's hands. Nothing can happen without His permission, and all will end well for those who love Him. He is our faithful Creator. He has made us all, and will take care of us.' "'Creator!' "'Nature!' said the young lady, in answer to my gentle father. "'And this disease that invades the country is natural? "'Nature. "'All things proceed from nature, don't they? "'All things in the heaven, in the earth, and under the earth, "'act and live as nature ordains? "'I think so.' "'The doctor said he would come here to-day.' said my father, after a silence. I want to know what he thinks about it, and what he thinks we had better do. Doctors never did me any good, said Carmilla. Then you have been ill? I asked. More ill than ever you were, she answered. Long ago? Yes, a long time. I suffered from this very illness— but I forget all but my pain and weakness, and they were not so bad as are suffered in other diseases. You were very young, then. I dare say, let us talk no more of it. You would not wound a friend. She looked languidly in my eyes, and passed her arm round my waist lovingly, and led me out of the room. My father was busy over some papers near the window. "'Why does your papa like to frighten us?' said the pretty girl, with a sigh and a little shudder. "'He doesn't. Dear Carmilla, it is the very furthest thing from his mind.' "'Are you afraid, dearest?' "'I should be very much if I fancied there was any real danger of my being attacked as those poor people were.' "'You are afraid to die?' "'Yes, every one is.' "'But to die as lovers may.' to die together, so that they may live together. Girls are caterpillars while they live in the world, to be finally butterflies when the summer comes. But in the meantime there are grubs and larvae. Don't you see? Each with their peculiar propensities, necessities, and structure. So says Monsieur Buffon, in his big book, in the next room. Later in the day the doctor came, and was closeted with Papa for some time. He was a skilful man, of sixty and upwards. He wore powder, and shaved his pale face as smooth as a pumpkin. He and Papa emerged from the room together, and I heard Papa laugh and say as they came out, "'Well, I do wonder at a wise man like you. What do you say to hippogriffs and dragons?' The doctor was smiling, and made answer, shaking his head. 
Nevertheless, life and death are mysterious states, and we know little of the resources of either. And they walked on, and I heard no more. I did not then know what the doctor had been broaching, but I think I guess it now. End of chapter 4